Let's open the Bible this morning to the book of Revelation, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, and it'll connect with our text because it references the, the tree of life, which is first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis 2. And the mentioning of that tree will be part of our text this morning in Genesis 2. So let's pay attention to what the Lord reveals in Revelation 22, page 1327 of the Pew Bible. So the Lord Jesus is showing to John a certain revelation, and John records that, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no, lamp of la uh, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. 
He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The text for this morning's sermon comes from Genesis chapter 2, continuing our series on these opening chapters of the Bible. This morning we're going to go back a little bit to chapter 2, verse 9, the second part of verse 9, and then verses 15 and, or rather 16 and 17. So verse 9 of chapter 2, maybe just to read the first part as well, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." That'll be the focus of the preaching this morning. In response to the gospel proclamation, we'll sing about uh, our love for the Lord, Psalm 63, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, a little while ago, before the season of Advent, we left off the preaching on Genesis at the end of chapter 2, where we saw how the Lord instituted marriage. Out of Adam's rib, the Lord made a special and unique helper suitable for the man, and the two became one flesh, husband and wife. But before we can go on now to chapter 3, we have to briefly go back and take care of some unfinished business, you could say. We have to examine a couple of trees. The events of chapter 3 will soon center around the forbidden fruit of one particular tree. And that tree is first introduced to us in Genesis 2 in our text verse 9, and then again verse 16 and 17. So significant is this tree that when Adam and Eve eat the fruit of this tree, everything changes. Their life changes, literally the world around them changes, and even the whole human race that will come out of their bodies is profoundly affected. Paradise, on the eating of that fruit, paradise is ruined. The world is perverted as soon as that tree is eaten from. What sort of tree is this? What are we to make of this tree and and its fruit and its apparent power? And what about that other tree, the one called the tree of life? What is its role in the garden? How does it connect to the first tree? 
To answer those questions, I bring you this word of the Lord. The Lord gives two trees to deepen man's faith in Him. The Lord gives two trees to deepen man's faith in Him. We'll see that these trees reveal the essence of evil as well as the essence of life. Well, the first thing we should notice in our text is that we are dealing here with two special trees, not just one. might be uh, easy to get that confused because after verse uh, 9, we don't read of the two trees mentioned in a single verse again. But verse 9 makes it very, very clear we're dealing with two trees. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about these trees over the course of the centuries. Some busy themselves trying to figure out precisely what it is about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that led to the disastrous result of man being evicted from Eden. Did this tree have poisonous fruit? Did this tree have power to pervert man's thinking and corrupt man's nature? And what about the tree of life? What, was it a, a magical tree that could actually extend life, that if you ate from this tree, that it had power, the fruit had power to, to give life or extend life? Are we to think of the tree of life like some kind of fountain of youth? Well, what often goes unnoticed in these discussions is that these two trees were set next to each other, right beside each other, in the middle of the garden. If you recall, it was the Lord God who planted this garden. He designed this, this, this park, we would, we would say, this arboretum. He didn't put these two trees on opposite sides of the garden. He didn't hide the one from the other. He deliberately puts them side by each in order to have people understand them as a pair. They're to be understood in tandem. They, they are to work together. We need to realize that later on in chapter 3, when Eve stands by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, having that discussion with the serpent, then the tree of life is right there. It's looming large and silent in the background. She's standing next to the tree of life as she's talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So these two trees are together, and they're together in a particular location. It says, our text, they're in the middle of the garden, in the center. You could say that these two trees, they occupied center stage in man's new home, the garden. And you know that when something is placed in the center of your home, your living space, you can't help but look at it. You can't help but think about it. That's why we put something in the center, right? Maybe it's in your home, it's a, a beautiful painting on a wall in your living room, or maybe it's a flowers on the, on the table, on the coffee table, whatever it is, there's something that draws your eye, you put it there to draw the eye. God put these two trees in the middle to draw man's eye, his attention. So that makes them quite important. What then are we to think of these two trees? Is one tree evil and the other tree good? 
Well, we know that can't be the case because just like all the trees in the garden, these, all of, these two as well were planted by God. Nor do these two trees somehow have independent power or magic of their own. God created them, and no created thing ever has independent power from the Creator. So what the Creator creates is good. These trees, both of them are good in themselves. They're not even supernatural trees. Like all the other trees, verse 9 says, they grew out of the ground. Their fruit was good and pleasing to the eye like all the other trees. Of themselves, we could say these were perfectly ordinary trees. What makes them different is that God plants them in a special location for a special purpose, and He gives them special names. In fact, no other trees in the garden get names, just these two. And those names reveal to us their purpose, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Somehow, these trees would impart knowledge and life, but how? We don't have a ton of information here in our text, so we have to ponder this carefully. Some have thought that Adam and Eve could gain the knowledge of good and evil precisely by eating of the fruit of that tree. That would give them a certain knowledge. Others take that thought a little further and explain that actually God didn't want them to have that knowledge. God, say these people, did not want man to be like him, understanding both good and evil. So God deliberately put a limitation around that one tree. He commanded them not to eat of that tree so God alone could retain that special knowledge. This pictures God trying to protect His high position, His sovereignty. And God doesn't want man to share in any of that. But is that really the way the God of the Scriptures acts? Is the Lord ever really afraid that a human being can become like Him, equal to Him in knowledge and power? And besides that, later on when Adam and Eve did eat of the tree, did they suddenly enter into some exalted state of knowledge and understanding equal to that of the Lord God? Just the opposite, right? From the moment they ate of that tree, a twisted sense of right and wrong came over them. And in their whole nature was a perverted sense of good and evil. And they were nothing like God. So we have to look elsewhere for an explanation, brothers and sisters. And a better explanation is to see that God intended to give, to impart the knowledge of good and evil to his son and daughter, precisely by not eating of that tree. That's how they would get that knowledge. God's commandment in verse 16 is very clear. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, it wasn't the fruit itself that contained power. 
the power to make a person wise or to give a person knowledge, but it was the act of obedience. It was obeying the Lord's commandment that would make a person wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not eating from a particular tree. For if you think of Adam and Eve's situation there in the Garden of Eden, then they knew of no evil, did they? They had been created in the image of God. So the inclination of their hearts was always toward God for the good. They were filled with a love for God. They were filled with a love for their neighbor, for each other. A bad thought never crossed their minds. They knew their Creator in perfect bliss. There was no taint of sin or evil in their nature. No sin had entered into the world or into their environment. You could say that they loved God and they obeyed God's will by instinct, very naturally. That's how they were created. It came from their heart without realizing or knowing that there was an alternative to disobey God. Much like you and I don't give any thought to breathing, right? We, we don't think actively, consciously about taking in oxygen into our lungs in order to stay alive. We just do it. So Adam and Eve gave little thought to the act of obeying God's will and living in fellowship with them, with Him. They just did it. It came natural. That's why the Lord put these two trees there. With these two trees, God intends to deepen the love of man for Him. How? By forcing a choice between good and evil. The Lord wants from His people, from His sons and daughters, a, a love and devotion that goes beyond a natural inclination to that of a deliberate, willful choice when faced with an alternative, even an attractive alternative. That alternative appears in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve would look at that tree and they would see that the fruit of that tree was good. It was attractive. It was just as pleasing to the eye as any other fruit of any other tree in the garden. But unlike any of the other trees in the garden, this single tree confronted them with a choice. Go ahead and pluck the tasty fruit from this tree or do what the Lord commanded and leave it alone. This was the only tree in the garden where they were faced with that choice, where Adam and Eve became aware of the possibility that they could do wrong, where there was an option to disobey. And that's why God calls it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord wasn't hiding knowledge from His children by forbidding the fruit. He was holding out knowledge to them. This is what evil is. He was offering wisdom to them by making this tree the line in the sand they must not cross. God was teaching them the way of wisdom, the way of true obedience, by distinguishing that way from disobedience, something they had no other opportunity for in the garden. At the end of the day, the Lord wants a heart 
that consciously rejects every alternative and instead gives itself fully to obeying Him. Do you start to see, brothers and sisters, how this tree, how it reveals to us the nature of evil, the essence of evil? I often, I think that we often define evil differently. We, we tend to define evil by its negative impact or effects, the consequences it, it will have. We think that murder is evil because it robs someone of their life and it, it brings strife between people. We know that stealing is evil because it robs people of their possessions and leaves another person poor. It does that person harm. Rape is evil because it demeans and defiles another person. So we have no trouble identifying those things as evil. As long as we can see the negative outcome, then we can see that it's evil. But what about when the outcome is not so clear, not so certain in our minds? For example, when a person withdraws his membership from the church without any valid reason, just, just pulls out, is that evil? Is that a sin? When a person doesn't give of his first fruits to maintain the ministry of the gospel, the first portion of your income, to assist with the poor and the needy as well, is that evil? In our thinking, it's easy for those matters to become rather gray. We're not so sure whether we can call things like that sins or evil. But brothers and sisters, in our cloudy thinking, we've lost sight of what evil actually is. Look at this tree. Look at the, the command that, that goes with this tree. There's nothing about this tree that would bring harm to the, to the man and his wife. Verse 9 says it already, and Eve echoes it later in chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, so that the tree was, the fruit was not poisonous, it was, it was good fruit. It would have gone in and supplied nutrition for the body. It had no poison or thorns in it, Adam would not have become, or Eve would not have become sick or diseased from the fruit itself. Like any other fruit, it would have been tasty and it would have been satisfying. The Lord doesn't command man to stay away from the fruit of this tree because there's evil in the tree, but because He wants man to love His Creator enough to trust his God enough to simply obey because God said so. Full stop. Doing the will of God is to be our greatest desire. It's to be our highest priority. It has to mean more to us than any of our other desires or wishes or wants. Something is sinful, brothers and sisters. Not in the first place because it brings harm or ill effects but because it goes contrary to the will of God, that fact alone makes it evil. Do we accept that? Can we work with that and apply it very personally in our lives? 
This is quite radical compared to how we often judge matters. We tend to downplay sin. We tend to downplay evil when we can't see the fallout. But we forget how our act of disobedience is an offense to the holy God of heaven and earth. How it's a slap in God's face when we take one of His commands and say, nah, I'm not going to obey that. No harm done. No harm done except to the majesty of the Lord. And that's what makes it evil. When God in the Scriptures commands us to be one in faith, to unite together in the body of Christ, when He commands His blessing upon the unity of the flock, what is it but sin when someone just breaks away from that flock? When the Lord commands us to give of our first fruits, what is it but evil for us to, to break that command, hold back our first fruits, and hold back our hand from the needy? Brothers and sisters, let's be clear-minded. Let's not fool ourselves. Let's not reduce such things and things of that nature to some kind of murky gray zone where we really don't, want, don't know what to call it. Understand that if it goes against the will of God as revealed in Scripture, it is evil. Just the same as Eve plucking the fruit from the tree. And the punishment for such actions, the punishment that the Creator attaches to that, to sin, is death. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Again, this is serious. We have to be very, very clear-headed about these things. If we indulge in sin without repentance, we cut ourselves off from the tree of life. For that's the other tree, and it works together with the first Recall they're standing next to each other. They are, in fact, designed as, as opposites. They're meant to represent contrasting choices. Eating of the tree of life, that was the way to eternal life. Eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was the way to eternal death. The contrast is implied in verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden every tree. That would include the tree of life. The only tree prohibited is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The two trees, they show the, the two paths that man can walk. It's, it's very similar to Psalm 1, or Psalm 1, you could say, picks up on, on this, these twofold, this twofold option. Either Adam and Eve would wholeheartedly obey God and pass over the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to take from the tree of life, or they would choose to break God's command and pluck the fruit of that forbidden tree and choose His own pathway. And of course, we know which pathway mankind took. What these two trees present to man is a test. It's God's test. Just as He would later test His people on different occasions throughout history, you can think of how the Lord tested Abraham. A very severe test commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Can you imagine? 
didn't give Abraham a reason. Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, take him to a certain mountain and sacrifice him there to me. Did that even make sense to Abraham? Sometime later, the Lord tested Israel in the desert. We sang about that from Psalm 81. You also saw how at Meribah I was there to test you, to test you, Israel. What's the Lord hoping to gain by testing either Abraham or Israel? Well, His object was to show to them that the way of life, the way of true life, was the way of loving Him with all their heart, all their soul, all, all their mind. They had to put Him above everything else. Abraham was basically asked the question, do you love me more than your son? Will you obey my command, even though it doesn't make sense to you, will you obey my command or will you obey your gut instinct and, and take your own way? And Israel, in the harsh climate of the desert, was asked, do you trust the Lord to provide all your needs? Or would you rather run back to Egypt? Sounded impossible that the Lord in this wilderness should provide for two million people water and food, water and food day after day. Where was the Lord going to get water and food day after day for all of us. Let's go back to Egypt. And some of them said that. Some of them were tempted to do that. We sang about that in verse 10 of Psalm 81. By their willful choice, they my love rejected. They ignored my voice. Israel did not heed what they were taught. They my law neglected. The Lord wanted them to love Him from the heart, with all of their heart. He wanted them to flee from all so-called so other options to give themselves wholly to their God and trust His promises even when there didn't seem any earthly reason to do so. I mean, Egypt was a sure thing. There was lots of food in Egypt. Well, yeah, we might have to be slaves, but there was lots of food. Faith becomes deeper. It becomes wholehearted. It becomes as full as it can be when God is trusted and God is believed even contrary to human logic, rationale, or desire. The tree of life shows us this, this essence of life. Why would Adam and Eve take from the tree of life rather than from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Again, each tree had food equally pleasing to it. The tree of the knowledge, the tree of life didn't really, on the surface, didn't really add anything to, to Adam and Eve. I mean, they already had life. There wasn't going to be a net gain from eating of that tree. So why should that tree have been of interest to them? The other tree was more attractive. They, there was something to gain by working with that tree. The only thing that would compel them to choose the tree of life over the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
was the desire to love the Lord above all else? Was this decision to consciously reject an act of disobedience in favor of an act of obedience to the God they loved? The only thing compelling them to eat of the tree of life would be a pure-hearted love for the Lord that yielded obedience to His commands despite a very attractive and an appealing alternative. And that is life, beloved. That, that's the essence of life as a human being, to love God, to, to yearn for the Lord and fellowship with Him. The essence of death is hatred of God, separation from God. But the, the stuff of life is a hunger for God's presence, a thirst for communion with Him. Is that the hunger and thirst of your heart, of my heart? It's got to be more than just going through the motions, right? It's not enough to say that God exists. Lots of people say, oh, I believe God exists. I, I believe in God. But then they ignore His commands completely. They just do their own thing. That's not faith. Not by a country mile. And it does not lead to eternal life. And a little closer to home, what do you think? Do you think that it's enough to grow up in a Christian family, attend a Christian school, be part of a Christian church, and have the basic form of a Christian life? All those things are excellent gifts, okay? I'm not trying to run them down at all. We, we should treasure those gifts. We should use those gifts. But if that's all that they are, that's my point now, if that's all that we've got, if it's just going through the motions, then all we have is an empty shell. It's not going to be of any help on the day of judgment. We have to have a heart for the Lord that loves the Lord as He loves us. This is what life is. It's to want nothing so much as to know the Lord, to have a heart connection with God, to, to commune with Him. That's where the joy of life lies. Psalm 63, which we'll sing shortly, says it well. Your steadfast love is better far than life itself, O oh God, my Savior. Your love is better than breathing. It's better than staying alive. What the psalmist is describing in 63 is the tree of life. Following God's commandments out of a heartfelt devotion to the Lord, out of a love for Him to please Him more than anything else, that is equivalent to eating of the tree of life. Two trees once stood there in the middle of God's garden paradise at creation. At the end of all things, two trees will once again stand in the middle of God's city paradise. Did you notice that as we read from Revelation 22? There's two trees. They pop up again, only it's a bit different. In that very dazzling description of the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of both God and man, we read there, on either side of the river stood the tree of life, 
with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. We got two trees again. Only this time it's not two opposing trees, but it's two of the same, two trees of life. Gone is the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The time of testing is past, and the time of eternal life has come for all who have access to those trees. And access to those trees comes through faith in the Lamb of God. John says it in verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. That they may have the right access to the tree of life. You know, we, we forfeited access. We forfeited that right in the first Adam when we broke God's command we violated His covenant with us. We were expelled from the garden, weren't we? Sinners are not welcome in the company of God. Sinners are not welcome into eternal life. That sin has to be dealt with. Those who have dirty robes may not take from the tree of life. But the gospel is this, brothers and sisters. You and I may wash our robes. How do we wash our robes? We take those robes to the second Adam, whose name is Jesus. That second Adam who made the right choice where the first Adam failed. We run to this last Adam who followed God's commandment, even when it brought him shame and pain and death. We trust in the Son who loved His Father with such a perfect and deep love, yet who was made to hang on a tree It's no accident Jesus died on a cross. He hung on the tree of pain, the tree of death. We trust in the Son. We wash our robes in the blood of this Lamb, for only in His blood can our robes be white. And then they are white as snow. So tell me, brothers and sisters, do you want eternal life? Then love the Father with all your heart and follow God the Son with all your might and be transformed by the Spirit with all your being. God gave everything He had for you and He gives it still. His Spirit floods us with grace every day. So won't we give everything we have for Him? Amen.